Hello friends, as an advisory, this episode contains content that may not be appropriate for some listeners. The topics of sexuality and sexual abuse are discussed, so if these things make you uncomfortable or you're listening with folks who may be too young for these subjects, please know that this is an unedited and explicit episode. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Memories of a Moonbird podcast, exploring life one story at a time. Hello friends, today on the show, he grew up closeted and impoverished in the Ozarks of Southern Missouri. It was a difficult beginning that led to many of his personal inspirations for change. As a writer for most of his life, he wrote for regional magazines and newspapers until 2014 when he published his first award-winning novel, Confessions from the Pumpkin Patch. His second novel, The Calling Dream, was published earlier this year. Through his characters, often told in the first-person perspective, he likes to explore the psychology of the human condition. His novels incorporate the social and historical influences surrounding his characters and are stories of overcoming social, emotional, and spiritual challenges. In addition to his work as a writer, he's also been a clinical social worker focusing on trauma survivors for almost 40 years. He says he draws from those experiences and he says he draws from those experiences and his own to create his stories and in his own words says, quote, "I want to be to mental health what John Grisham is to law." Please welcome author Carlisle Toms. Carlisle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very nice to be with you here. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I want to jump right in. What was it like for you growing up in the rural Ozarks? Well, um, hmm. we lived about 10 miles outside of a town that was less than 2,000 people. And the nearest town to that was only about 6,000 people. And uh, my grandparents raised me on a farm, what I lovingly refer to as the butt crack of nowhere. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't have much contact with anybody growing up, grew up in the 1960s. We had an old black and white TV and we could get two channels, but you had to go outside and turn the antenna to get the other channel. Wow. And how were you and your family affected by all the politics and the craziness of the 1960s? Well, a lot of that I didn't know about. I avoided the news when I was a kid. My grandfather would sit there and cuss at the television. A lot of it was seeing things about Vietnam. And what I particularly recall is seeing things about race riots, those kinds of things like the, the riot at the Democratic Convention. And then there were riots in Detroit. There were riots in various different places. There was the Martin Luther King assassination. When I was in the third grade, they shut down school because of the John F. Kennedy assassination. A very turbulent, crazy time. Very. July 20th, 1969, we landed on the moon. Do you remember that? I remember that. I remember going to school and learning about it in school. I came home to my grandfather and told him that I learned about them walking on the moon. And he said, that's a damn lie. Really? Yes. My mother died when I was five years old. And so that's why my grandparents raised me. So my whole childhood, my mother was telling me, your mother wanted you to go to school. And then from my grandpa, I get, that's a damn lie. It was a little confusing sometimes. I would say so. Now, you know, in the intro, we talked about you growing up closeted and impoverished in the Ozarks, did you know you were gay your whole life? You know, I, I think it, it, like any kind of discovery of that kind of thing, uh, you know, did you know you were straight your whole life? It, it's one of those things that just kind of begins to happen. I knew from the time I was a very small child that I appreciated the presence of men 
but I also was afraid of men because I was abused by men. That's a very difficult thing to live with. How did you get out of that? How did you, you know, a lot of people I've talked to have their coming out story. Did you feel unsafe in that area of the country in that time period? Yes, I did. I referenced in my book, the the most recent novel that was just published, The Calling Dream, I referenced a character in that book who quoted something that I heard when I was a teenager. And that was the, the minister of the church, the minister who baptized me, did a sermon in which he said, uh, the sin of homosexuality is worse than the sin of murder. Wow, really? You're 16 years old and you go home with that knowing how you feel. First of all, if I tell anybody, are they going to kill me? Am I going to get beaten up? Should I kill myself if I'm worse than a murderer? So I had those kinds of thoughts going through my head long before I got out of high school. And I did a whole lot of pretending like I was just like everybody else. When did you first feel free to be yourself? Probably not until the last five or 10 years. Wow. And you're how old now, if you don't mind me asking? I I will turn 65 very shortly. So for 60 years... You well, I mean, the first few years when you, know, you know, obviously we're when we're just forming, that doesn't that doesn't really count. But basically, for you know, say fifty years of your life, you did not feel comfortable just being yourself. No, and a, a lot of that, even though I had accepting friends, and even though I was open at work and around people, you know, I had people who would make comments who wouldn't know that I was gay, who would make comments and. You know, then that set me back. And, and, and I struggled. One of the reasons that I studied spirituality so much was because I struggled with that whole concept that there was something horribly wrong with me or that I was a terrible sinner if I was gay. And mm. I studied all kinds of spiritual texts. What happened, one of the things that happened to me, and, and there's been a tremendous amount of serendipity in my life where things just fall together. So one of the things that happened was I went to a little Presbyterian college thinking that I was going to a state school because I was very naive. And that little Presbyterian college was the place where I first began to feel accepted, that I first began to have permission from other students, from professors to own who I was. I still was exceedingly careful and really didn't even begin to act on gay feelings until I was in my mid-20s after graduate school. Well, let me jump back and ask you a question about the spirituality. You know, a lot of the doctrine of religion, uh, most, most world religions, teaches love and peace and kindness and stuff, and then yet they say, but if you're gay, fuck you, you know, you should kill yourself or be murdered. I mean, how do you reconcile that hypocrisy? Well, it took me a long time. And one of the things I finally came to is if you're going to cherry pick the Bible, pick the good fruit, not the rotten fruit. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful quote. You know, there are so many people who justify their prejudice. And, and even before this, uh, there, were, there was prejudice against black people that was justified in the Bible. It, it has been a long, hard fight and continues to be a long, hard fight, especially in some countries in the world, even more than the U.S., for people to be accepted as equal no matter who they are. Do you think things are better today than they were in 1965? Oh, absolutely. There's gay marriage now. 
Yeah. Do you think they'll continue to get better? I hope so. I will do everything that I can to try to encourage people to understand that unless we all matter, nobody matters. Well, and let me ask you this, because this is a question I, I think is very difficult to answer, but I'd love to hear your opinion. When we strip away all of the the nonsense, what do you personally think is behind those kinds of thoughts for people? Like, what are they actually really afraid of? Why why would they be anti-gay? Why are they afraid for gay people to be married? Why do they think, you know, oh, this is a sin or whatever? Like, what's really behind it? I think that I think that there's a kind of cultural and inherent misogyny, and that part of that misogyny is that men are not to be anything like a woman, and part of that misogyny is that women who imitate men. I think there's been. And I may be wrong, and, I, I, and I'm sure my lesbian friends might challenge me on this, but I think there's been slightly more acceptance of lesbians in society over history than there I have been of gay men. And part of that is that misogyny. I've been around so many men growing up that have seriously looked at me and said things like, well, yeah, lesbian porn's fine because it's, it's sexy, but gay porn, oh, that's fucked up. Yeah. And it's like, excuse me? Like, how does that make sense in your brain? Homosexuality is homosexuality, no matter the gender. It doesn't, you know, I'm not sure we'll find the answer in our generation, you know, in the next 10, 20 years, but I wish we could. And I wish we could fix it because it seems to me that there's a great deal of fear uh, that's unnecessary in all of this, you yeah. know? I think, you know, some of it, you know, if you look at the psychology of it, there, women give birth. And there is this fear that women have this power to seduce men and men make themselves, they make women responsible for their own feelings. The whole idea behind women in Muslim cultures having to cover themselves and in some, some American cultures, the, when I grew up in a church which said that a woman should be covered in church. And so part of that, I think, is that men blaming women that if, you know, if, if I'm a heterosexual male and I see this woman and I have a lustful thought for her, it's her fault. Yeah. She shouldn't have dressed like that. She shouldn't have done like that. She shouldn't have enticed me instead of taking responsibility for their own choices and their own behavior. And I, I can tell you that growing up gay, keeping myself silent, never ever making the slightest move toward any man and controlling myself for my entire life, I have precious little empathy for anyone who says they couldn't help it or mm. that it's someone else's fault. Fascinating. I'm curious along these lines, when and why did you actually leave the Ozarks? Was it because you're gay and you wanted to get out of there? I could not wait to get out of there. And it, it wasn't necessarily because I was gay. It, I was abused in my family. And I just, I just felt like there had to be something more. There had to be something better. I think one of the things that growing up with television did for me is that it allowed me to see that there were other families and there were other ways of looking at things. But when I first went to college, the first thing I did was went, I went straight to the campus counselor and said, sign me up. I had a high school counselor who got me interested in psychology. And part of that was that trying initially trying to figure out myself and figure out my family. And the reason that I kept at it was that I, I realized there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way of thinking about it. There's got to be a better way of living and, and feeling 
And I was absolutely determined that I was going to find it. I have to ask you, because you went from the Ozarks, and now I know you're in Texas. The South is not exactly known in the United States as being the most tolerant of communities. Um, Why did you not head north? You know, I don't know. My father is from California. And so I know that LA is liberal. Why didn't I head to LA? Part of that was that I was scared. I met my dad when I was 18 Mm. and he encouraged me to move to LA, but I was just too terrified. I had so much fear instilled in me and lack of trust, distrust of, of all kinds of things that I just couldn't bring myself to go there when I was young. What was your relationship with your father like after that? I had a good relationship with my father after I met him. My dad had been a prisoner of war in Japan in World War II. He was captured in Guam a few days after Pearl Harbor and shipped off to POW camps in Japan. Wow. And he had come back and and my grandfather during the 50s, somebody told him the desert air would be good for his asthma. So he loaded up the truck and he moved to Beverly. They boarded up the house (laughs) and they moved to LA without considering that coming from a place where you're 10 miles outside of a town of 2000 people and going to Los Angeles would create a little bit of a culture shock. To say the least. To say the least. But my dad had narrated a book about his experiences as a POW. And when he met my mom, the way that he tells the story is that she would come once a day to a bar and have one drink and leave. And he asked the bartender about her and he said, the bartender says, oh, well, she's the mystery lady. So by going to that bar, my mom was breaking the rules of my upbringing church as well. Hmm. But once a day she would go and he took it as a challenge. But I think my mom must have looked at him as glamorous because he was an author. And at the time, he also happened to be a bit player for Universal Studios. So when my mom came back, and she came back because of my father's PTSD, and I didn't learn this until I met him as an adult, and he told the story about how all of his acting out and his womanizing and drinking and all of those kinds of things drove her away from him. And she came back and said, don't have anything to do with me. I never want to talk to you again, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I was five years old, she was killed. And my grandfather, how how was she killed? She was killed in a car wreck, but there was some speculation that she might've been murdered by my stepdad who disappeared with everything she had right after she died. It was a single car fatality, dry pavement on a sunny day the car supposedly rolled down an embankment with both of them in it. He barely had a scratch on him and she was so mutilated that they had to have a closed coffin. Did you ever meet him uh, or get justice? I mean, well, the interesting thing about that is that when I was 14, my aunt and uncle were living in Liberty, Missouri, which was right outside of Kansas city at that time. And my cousin who was four years older than me, through an employment agency, actually got a job at a gas station that my stepfather owned. And I, they came down, took me to Kansas City for a two-week visit, and there's a lot of turning points in that particular visit for me. But they never told me that my cousin had gotten this job, or had, he had been offered the job, he turned it down, where my stepfather owned the gas station. Hmm. I was furious that they never let me know about that, that I didn't have the opportunity to go talk to him. But I guess they were trying to protect me. Now, he's gone? 
as far as I know, I, I the the only time that I ever heard anything about my stepfather after that was because of my cousin being given that job or offered that job with him. So I didn't hear anything else from him ever after that. I have no idea if he's alive, dead or whatever. But my grandfather would not allow me to contact my dad. And when I was 18 and I began insisting on it and kept trying to find him, I wrote a letter to the publishing company of his book and the publishing company sent me back a letter. We didn't have a phone either, by the way. Wow. They sent a letter back to me and told me that they don't give out names and addresses of their authors, but they had forwarded my letter to him. And then I got a letter from my dad and he made arrangements to fly to Little Rock and meet me in Little Rock where my, another aunt lived. Well, now a quick question. How come growing up your dad wasn't a part of your life? That's a very long story. Okay. Well, so all of these things you've been through from you know, being gay in the Ozarks to abuse to all the crazy stuff with your parents, all this stuff. How has all of this affected you as a writer? Well, that my books, what I want to do, what, I, what I've done in my poetry book, uh, The Gulls Are Always Laughing, I've done a lot of personal poetry, things about my own experience up to and including my cousin committing suicide right after I graduated graduate school. And my cousin, by the way, was a lesbian. Was your cousin living in the Ozarks with you? She grew up there and she was, she was also, her mother was the one who was living part of the time in Kansas city. So mm. she grew up partly, partly in Kansas city and partly in Southern Missouri. But you know, the, the coming through that, the, and, and I said earlier that my life has been a series of serendipitous kind of things. My grandmother was my anchor when I was growing up. She got me through that. She got me through that whole thing of, of feeling so horrible about myself and having a horrible self-esteem and being afraid. She got me to the point that I got to college. And when I got to college, I had mentors and guides that I met there, some of whom were other students and some of whom were teachers. And so I began to come out of that. For one thing, I started therapy at 18 years old. I stayed in therapy off and on for 18 years. So I worked a lot toward dealing with my own issues and my own stuff during that time. And I continue to work on that. Carlisle, if you were going to give a piece of advice to anybody in the LGBTQ community who's perhaps, you know, closeted, living somewhere, whether they're afraid or not for their safety, what kind of advice would you give to them? Well, one thing I would tell people, because if they're closeted, they're probably more likely involved with some fundamentalist religious group. I would tell them God loves you no matter what. It doesn't make any difference. And people who cherry pick the Bible and pick the bad fruit, you don't worry about them. You worry about, you think about the people who love you and the people who've got your back mm -hmm. and you turn to those people. Now, do you still experience prejudice in your life? N not so much. Uh, not that I'm aware of. I do have, of course, you know, being, having clients, uh, there are times when I hear people say things that are prejudiced, but a lot of times, Sometimes it's just pure bigotry, but a lot of times it comes out of their own hurt. Yeah, I can see that. Absolutely. I think if a man is sexually abused or raped by another man, then it's very, very easy to generalize. And all prejudice is generalization. It's easy to generalize and say all gay people are bad people. And I'm just now in, in the process, as a matter of fact, of writing 
a blog post that I'm calling everything under the rainbow. I haven't written a blog post for my website in several months. And this got stirred up by a conversation that I was having with a friend back in the Ozarks who was sexually abused when he was a child and was speculating that his sexual abuse is what caused him to have sexual attractions to men. He's more straight than he is gay, but my speculation of him would be that he's probably bisexual. But we were talking about that and he was asking questions. And so I, you know, I said, you know, can't do this in a quick conversation and can't do it by text. I will write this blog post and hopefully in the blog post, a lot of things will be explained, including that your sexuality does not come from being sexually abused, first of all, and that, you know, your, your orientation does not come from that because there, there are plenty of people, plenty of men. My observation over the years is that about 90% of the men who have been sexually abused are heterosexuals. And it's, so it's about the same percentage as their main population. Also, what's really funny to me is when people talk about this as if homosexuality is something new. And I'm like, have you ever looked at some of the old cave paintings and some of the evidence we've found? Like homosexuality has been around since the dawn of species. It's in other animals. It's not just in humans. Like it's people are just ignorant. Yeah, but there's there is this idea that it that it's abnormal. And that's one of the things I'm addressing in that blog post. Carlisle, do you think that we're going to evolve as a species to a world without prejudice and hate at some point in the future? I certainly hope so. I think I'm going to do the best I can to try to encourage that. I don't have a big platform at this point. I do encourage acceptance and understanding. I think through writing novels is a fantastic platform and hopefully you know, your work will begin to spread and people will be influenced by it. And do you have some kind of litmus test or a barometer of you will believe you are successful when a certain number of people have read your book and commented on it, or do you not care how many people it reaches? Well, I would love for it to reach millions of people, but I don't know that I count. I think I'm already a success in that my first novel won an award. It was endorsed by Meredith Sisko, who worked with the, the Oscar-nominated film Winner's Bone. So that just astounded me. And when I wrote that novel, I started out writing it as a joke. It was supposed to be ha 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 funny. And I sat down, allowed this character to have her say, I wrote it as first person female. She had a whole lot more to say than jokes. I thought it was going to be a funny thing. And I tried to stick some funny stuff in it, but she kind of directed it and I ended up, it was like reading a novel as I wrote it versus writing it or coming up with the story and the idea. It just wrote itself. I'll tell you what's fascinating to me actually as a writer myself is that people, people who don't write, I'm not sure if they understand what it's like when you're so deeply involved in the creation and the characterization of these people and these events that you're writing about. When I wrote my first novel, I spent months and months and months working on it. And at some point late at night, I was totally exhausted. I reached over to pick up the phone to call Sarah, who was one of the characters in my book, because I just wanted to hang out with her and see if she wanted to like, get it, go see a movie. <laughs> you know, and and then you, you go, oh my God, I think I'm going crazy. I just tried to call a fictional character that I wrote, you know, but like you, you do become so 
um, engrossed by this world you're creating, I think if you're really in it, yeah. that I love what you just said about how this this character then had more to say. And and people think that's crazy, but it's not. You really you really start to allow these characters to come to life. And in a really good book or script or whatever, I think it shows. Yeah. The interesting thing is that when I quit trying to write a novel, I wrote a novel. <laughs> you know, I had ideas for stories for years and years and years. I never could get past the third or fourth chapter and I would get stuck because I was trying to write it versus allowing the character to tell me their story. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I'm curious, when you write, uh, and I know you kind of just addressed this, but do you feel any kind of obligation to create a story that's going to be palatable to people, or do you just want to tell the story you want to tell and that's it? What I do is I introduce a character and I let that character tell their story. And each novel introduces the protagonist of the next novel. For instance... Mm -hmm. And I call it the Soul Encounter series because they have an encounter with each other that then creates a turning point in both their lives. And then the character who is introduced in one novel tells his or her story in the next novel. So That's really cool. The, the character who is the protagonist of The Calling Dream is this basically sexually addicted televangelist who is going through these upheavals of shame because he feels like he can't control himself sexually. And he has a tryst with Lavella, who is the protagonist of the first novel that introduces him. And so he then there's a character in this novel where he he gets called. He's going to do a service at a big church in St. Louis. And the pastor of that church says, we've got this boy and I want you to talk to this boy and see if you can convince him, turn him around because this boy thinks he's a girl. And when he goes to talk to that boy, it creates an awareness in him that he begins to discover. It's a very, very difficult process for him to discover what's going on inside of himself. And it's not that he's gay. He's, he's heterosexual all the way through. But that boy is a trans girl who at mm. 10 years old, growing up in the slums of Pruitt, Igo in the in 1970, walked in at 10 years old to find her heroin addicted mother stabbed to death. So you're saying it's a very happy story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to have a happy ending. They all have, if not a happy ending, they have an, a resolution and a touching ending. Well, let me ask you this. Did publishing your first book change your process of how you wrote the second one? It, it introduced me to a process because instead of me trying to figure out, okay, I got this story and how do I write it and what do I put in? It introduced the process of just giving them a voice. Well, and what kind of research do you do when you write? And, and do you spend a lot of re time researching before you write a book or do you just dive in? I just dive in. And the, the research that I do, and here's the interesting thing too, is that things that I think about putting in the book, the timelines fall into place. And so writing the first book in the 1960s and the timelines related to that of the anti-war movement and the civil rights movement and the hippies and, uh, you know, drug, sex, rock and roll, all of the events that were occurring in the 1960s fell right into place with the story. And so I would go and research those events as to what happened. Imagine the characters in those places, what might happen if that character was in that place and 
what they would say, what they would do or how they would react. And then I would just let them do it. Well, let me ask you this. Is there an overriding theme to everything you write? Just a singular, you know, I write about the triumph of the human spirit or whatever. Is there some overriding? I think that would be the theme. I, I write about the trials of the human spirit. I think that would be exactly the theme. But the, the theme is also overcoming. I'm an overcomer. I got my master's degree. I went through all those years of therapy. I work every day at maintaining my spiritual development and being able to see the world from a loving perspective. I'm an overcomer. And so the characters in these books are overcomers. They are people who struggle through horrible, hellish kinds of things. What's something that you would give up to become an even better writer? I, I don't know how to answer that. Um, time. I would give up some time to learn things. One of the things that I want to do, I know when I turn 65, that most universities will allow you to audit classes for free. And so I'm wanting to take some classes in screenwriting. Mm. I've found so far that I tend to be a bit too verbose for screenwriting. It's, you know, I, I think of, you know, if, if a novel is a sonnet, screenwriting is haiku. <laughs> yes, very true. So I, I tend to be too explanative and I, I want to describe this and describe that and, and do all these things that I do when I write the novels and in screenwriting, you let the visual do most of the talking. Yeah. When I was in college, we converted, one of my assignments was to convert a screenplay I'd written to, or uh, excuse me, a book I'd written to a screenplay. And I remember being just so pissed because I had two and a half pages of just beautiful description of this room that this character was sitting in. And in the screenplay, it was one sentence. Yep. So absolutely. It was really crazy. Yeah. I recently, well, back several months ago, I saw the movie, uh, The Goldfinch. And of course, it's based on a Pulitzer Prize winning book. So I went and bought the book. The book, uh, according to Kindle on my phone, is 748 pages. And I get, I get precious little time to read. So it's taken me a long time. And, and what I'm looking at, I wanted to compare the two, having seen the movie, then going and reading the book and the people tell you, oh, the book was better. It's because there is so much that can go in a novel that simply cannot be translated into a two hour film. Sure. It's impossible. And this one in particular, I am, I'm both impressed with the novel but I'm impressed with the film and how they took these little pieces out of the novel and wove them together to create the same story. That's cool. If you could tell your younger writing self anything, what do you think it would be? Loosen up. Stop worrying about it. Get over it. Just write. I think that's fantastic advice for any writer. Just write. Yep. What's one of your favorite childhood books? Early childhood I was raised on Uncle Remus stories in early childhood, and, and there, there's a whole story around that, too. My grandparents in the hills of the Ozarks raised five children during the Great Depression, and one of the ways that they fed them is they went to what Grandma called the bottoms, and the bottoms were the cotton fields and the lowlands down around West Memphis. So they went to the bottoms and picked cotton, which meant that they drug cotton sacks right alongside black people. So my grandparents never, never seemed to see themselves as they were not, they were not prejudiced. They didn't see themselves as better or greater than, than someone who was black in that day and age, a lot of, there was tremendous amount of prejudice toward blacks, but my grandparents just didn't seem to have that. 
And one of the things that I think they picked up were, were those Uncle Remus stories that they then read to me as my childhood stories. Then when I was in high school, two books that uh, I enjoyed in high school, one was Harold and Maud, hmm. and the other was Walkabout, and the story of an Aboriginal boy in Australia going on yeah, his Yeah, they made a movie quest. out of it, yeah. Yeah. Do you know about the book? Uh, I didn't read the book. I've seen the movie. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie. I've read the book. Uh, what's the first book you read that made you cry? Do you remember? Or first movie you saw that made you cry? Do you remember either one? The, the first movie that made me cry was Old Yeller. Ah, classic. Watching that in black and white with all the commercials <laughs> on the little TV and, and uh, you know, that we had. But yeah, the, the end of that movie was just, it tore me up. I don't know that I've read very many books that have made me cry, except my own. There, there are times that I write things and they touch me when I write them and they bring up tears when I write them. I think that's beautiful. I think, I mean, you create this world and there's nothing wrong with being affected by it, you know, especially if you're so close to the material. Well, I, I think that if you're not affected by it, the reader is not going to be affected by it. I 100% agree. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. I'm curious to uh, talk to you a little bit about travel because, you know, the podcast has a has its roots in travel, even though it's about the human experience. Are you a fan of traveling? Absolutely. And is there somewhere you uh, have traveled, uh, have not traveled yet that you'd really like to go? Uh, every freaking place on earth that doesn't have a war zone or a hotspot <laughs> of COVID-19. I would I would just love to see. I, I, I always wanted to see things and explore. And I love culture. I love learning about different cultures and seeing how different cultures work. I think, you know, one of the things that I might consider doing if I were to go back and start over might be to, to be an anthropologist. But I, I love talking to how things, people from different cultures and how things work differently and how foods are different and all of that. But I've actually only been out of the United States twice. Where to? Uh, one was... Uh, to Mexico. Well, I went to Mexico twice. I've been to Cancun and Tijuana. And then I had a friend back in 2010 who he's got enough means that he takes his wife on a trip to Europe at least two or three times a year. They were supposed to go to the Cayman Islands here recently, but I, I think that got shut down because of the COVID-19 thing. But he called me up and he said, get your passport. And then he, he asked me where in the world I would like to go. Well, the first one I picked was Japan. I would love to go to Amida, where my dad's prison camp was. Oh, and yeah. I don't know that I will ever, that it's anything like it is now or that I'll ever get to go there. I, it's probably the prison camp, I'm sure, is gone. But I want to go to Japan. So he, he called me up and then he said, how would you like to go to Istanbul? And I said, he said, what do you think about that? And I said, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. And so he paid for the trip, paid for the hotel. Uh, it was the, I didn't pay anything on the airlines of the trip. We spent four days in London and seven days in Istanbul. How fantastic. Uh, it was wonderful. What was your favorite part? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved, I was so curious with Istanbul and the Islamic culture and one of the most beautiful things was the call to prayer. And you begin hearing the call to prayer all over the city and people stopping everything that they were doing to, to bow down and face Mecca. 
that was just magnificent to me. And of course, the Hagia Sophia is there. That's magnificent. I have to tell you, when we were traveling uh, just in Europe recently, we were starving and we were out walking around. And one of the only restaurants that was open at the time was this Turkish restaurant. And we decided to go in because neither of us had ever had Turkish cuisine before. And we both love food and love trying new foods. So we went in there and no joke, the meal was actually so far beyond fantastic that a couple months later when I got home, I actually contacted the restaurant because they have a website and I asked the chef if he'd be willing to give me the recipe for this particular stew that we had. And he, they were very kind and they said, I, I won't give you the exact recipe, but I can refer you to places that have variations of what we made and then you can experiment from there. So it was great and uh, just incredible food. And I'm sure that I haven't been to Turkey. I'd love to go, but the, the people were great. One of the experiences that I had, we, we went to, of course, we crossed over the Bosporus so we could say we were in two continents. And so we went over onto the Asian side and the only city in the world that spans two continents. Hmm. So we went over on the Asian side. We went to a restaurant and I ordered this soup and I swear to God, it tasted exactly like soup that my grandmother used to make. It was just like mm. identical to it. That is really cool. Do you have a favorite food? I'm just curious. Chocolate. <laughs> really? So last meal on earth is going to be chocolate? <laughs> if it ain't chocolate, it ain't candy. You can quote me on that. Now, now hold on. What kind of chocolate? Because that gets very specific. Dark chocolate, usually. Ugh, I usually I, prefer I, that. I poo-poo on And I'll tell you, C's chocolate, you cannot beat C's chocolate, sold out of California. My dad... Um, well, my stepmom actually, because dad sort of let that slip after my stepmom died. But my stepmom. I'm just going to interrupt you, and I'm going to say we're going to have to agree to disagree because I have tasted chocolates better than oh, C's really? are great. Well, I'm willing to give it a try, but my stepmom used to send me a two-pound box of of C's every year at Christmas, uh, and I definitely love it. That's cool. It is really good. It is very good. Yep. But I have I have tasted some European chocolates. Oh yeah. That have the gelato served. that I had in in Istanbul. Oh man, <laughs> we had to go back there three days in a row. Wow, I've never tasted anything remotely like it since then. I love that. I love when you find a place that's so good that you're like, even though there's other options, I'm going back to this place. That happened to us in New Orleans at this restaurant that was just so great. We went back there a couple of times. I'm curious, Carlisle, if you didn't write though, what would you do? I don't think I would be bored. Of course, I'm looking forward to being able to retire from my day job so I can write, but there's so many other things that I am interested in. I, I would love to do theater, whether that's community theater or maybe to uh, try to get in to do a commercial here, or there, or that kind of thing. That's going to have to wait until I do retire. But theater, I love to sing. I love my garden. I will be one of those people who, you know, my, I have an aunt who <laughs> I'll be like my aunt in some ways, because at 86 years old, she's still working a farm. And somebody said to her, you're going to die out there on that tractor. And she said, Lord, I hope so. <laughs> Good for her. So, you know, I'll probably be like that, too. I will just keel over one day. Besides the obvious answer of family and friends and writing, what are you most passionate about in life? I'm passionate about love and spirituality and people. I love people. I love to meet people. I love to talk to people. I love to be around people. I love different 
interesting people, cultures, those kinds of things. I just, I like people and I like the whole, the whole concept. Spirituality, I think in many ways saved me more than therapy did. And finding that balance of spirituality that the core of every religion is love. And when you, when you boil it down to the core, that's the real thing. Well, speaking of spirituality, what's your spirit animal? I have been fascinated with dolphins for many, many years. I had a dolphin come to me in a meditation back in the 1970s that the comment was that the dolphin was strong enough to be gentle and wise enough to be playful. Hmm. And so, but I, I had watched the flipper show all the time that I was growing up. So maybe that sort of turned me on to dolphins as well. But that one particular meditation and that particular statement meant a lot to me. But I also love hummingbirds. I don't know that I would ever want to live anywhere that didn't have hummingbirds. That's really cool. Now, if only they had a hybrid and you had like a humming dolphin. <laughs> that would be an interesting creature indeed. So <laughs> Dr. Doolittle, call Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> Carlisle, what do you think success in life is? Happiness. Living happy is success in life. I I've been talking about thinking about for many, many years, and maybe one of these days I'll get around to it, writing a book that I would call The Basic Laws of Happiness. And one of the things that I commonly teach people is that you don't discover happiness, you don't find it, you don't get it from some level of success or something like that. Happiness is a skill that we learn and maintain through regular practice. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think a, a substantial part of that falls into living truthfully in every way you can being yes. authentic to yourself, authentic to other people, you know, it's uh, and I, I, the unfortunate part about life is I think for most people, I don't really think you get that concept till you're in your forties, you know, maybe late thirties. That may be true, but I, you know, I think your, your patience with yourself is your patience with other people. Your love for yourself is your love for other people. And then I will quote RuPaul. If you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen up in here? <laughs> amen. Amen. So, you know, and I very much agree with that, that, that you have to love yourself. You have to love who you are. You have to find your strength. And, and one of the ways, you know, I've worked with so many people who have such horrible self-esteem. And one of the things I've said before is like, if there was a tub of shit over here and there was a $50 million diamond at the bottom of that tub, what would you do? Would you dig through it? Yeah. So your self-esteem, your love for yourself is that diamond. And the shit is all the stuff that got dumped on you. And when you dig through it and you quit allowing that to be what you think you are, you take that diamond out, you clean it up and you will shine. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful statement. And it segues beautifully into the last thing we're going to do, which is a little game that I play with all my guests called 299 Philosophical and Life Questions with Moonbird. I've collected 299 really awesome questions. You get to pick two numbers, and I'm going to ask you those questions. What are your two numbers, Carlisle Toms? 30, which was my worst birthday ever. And okay, and what's your second one? 69. Okay. 30 and 69. Well, hopefully the question 30 will be better than what you said. Better than your birthday, you said? Yeah. I mean, I had to grow up. I couldn't pretend to be a teenager anymore. Well, hopefully question 30 will be better than your birthday was. Here we go. Number 30. Do you usually stay friends with your exes? No, I don't. Okay. And they don't live in Texas. And 
the one I have right now is an absolute gem. He's a diamond. Big shout out to him. I won't name him, but okay. And number 69, who is the person besides your partner that you are closest with? My best friend. And and I've had several best friends over the years, but my best friend, Jeffrey, we've known each other well over 20 years. And he is somebody that won me over, so to speak. And I know absolutely he loves me, that he's got my back no matter what. And I absolutely love and adore him. He's the one who took me to London and Istanbul. And his lovely, wonderful wife gave up her seat on the plane for that two weeks. So wow. he could do that for me. So she's pretty damned awesome also. That is really cool. That is a great friend. Yeah. And Carlisle, I want you to know that if I had the money and means, I would, I would absolutely buy you a plane ticket to Japan. Well, maybe I can get my own one of these days. There you go. From your mouth to God's ear. Yeah, I definitely want to go to Japan. And Japanese food, by the way, is my favorite type of food. Fantastic. Chocolate's my favorite food, but Japanese is my favorite type. So some dark chocolate after a good Japanese meal, pretty much peace on earth for you? That would pretty much be it. Some really, really good sushi, nabiyaki udon, some uh, teriyaki salmon. There's all kinds of things I can I can think of that. I would love. Well, I not only wish you many happy Japanese meals in the future and a trip to Japan, but I sincerely wish you great luck with your novels. And I hope that they get made into movies. And we're having another conversation at some point from set where you're excited to be there watching your stuff come to life. And I wish the same thing. And thank you very much. And of course, all the best for you as well. Thank you, sir. A pleasure to talk with you and have a great day. Thank you. And bye bye now. Friends and listeners, if you or anyone you know has been sexually assaulted, please know that help is available. RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization, and you can reach them confidentially 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-656-4673 or visit their website at RAIN.org, R-A-I-N-N. Org. Additionally, in support of LGBTQ mental health specifically, there's The Trevor Project, who offer a safe and judgment-free place to talk. You can call The Trevor Lifeline at 866-488-7386 or visit thetrevorproject.org. T-H-E-T-R-E-V-O-R-P-R-O-J-E-C-T.org. Finally, you can also contact your own State Department of Mental Health Services for local referrals of people who can help. So please remember, you're not alone.